Hey everybody, welcome back to Now Let's Be Honest. My name is David Tate, and this is part 30 in our series going through the Gospel of Matthew. Before we get started, I just wanted to remind you that I just launched a new YouTube channel where I'm going to be posting a lot of the videos that used to would have been posted on my main channel, Now Let's Be Honest. So if you're wanting some more laid-back, long-form, informal content, such as the Bible studies that I lead at my house, or the discipleship groups that I lead, or the sermons that I preach at my church, you can find those at the new YouTube channel, which is simply called David Tate. However, for the stuff that you're currently listening to, that should all still be found on my main channel, and so if that's all you're here for, that is a-okay. Let's get back to the thing that you're actually here for. Today, we're going to head into Matthew chapter 10, which is our second discourse that Matthew's provided us with in his whole gospel. And one thing I've been trying to emphasize over the course of this whole series is really the structure of the gospel of Matthew, because to me, I think it's very helpful to understand the structure of a book if you're wanting to understand really what the author's trying to communicate through it. And for the majority of the gospel of Matthew, really until you reach the passion narrative in the back part of the book, Matthew structures his entire gospel in a series of five narratives and discourses, right? So he'll share some stories, that's the narrative section, and then he'll share some teachings, and that's the discourse section. And really what he does with this discourse section is he uses these discourses and the teachings of Jesus as a connective link uh, between the two narrative sections, right? So he'll share some stories, and then this teaching section will be the thing that transitions us from one set of stories to the next. And so chapters 1 through 4 was our first set of narratives, uh, and then you had chapters 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount, and that was the first discourse. Chapters 8 and 9 was our second set of narratives, and then now here in Matthew chapter 10, we're getting our second discourse, right? So that's kind of the whole structure of this. And what we saw in Matthew chapters 8 and 9 is that Jesus was doing really three primary things that Matthew was trying to get across. The first thing that Jesus was doing is he was demonstrating his power, right? Because if you go back to the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus was basically claiming a lot of authority for himself, right? So really the big picture of this whole thing, Matthew chapters 1 through 4, is where Matthew was authenticating Jesus and demonstrating that Jesus had a legitimate claim to the throne of Israel. Okay, well, you get to the Sermon on the Mount, and you get to see what Jesus claimed for himself. Did he claim that same authority? And sure enough, not only did he claim the authority of the king of Israel, but as we see... He claimed even more authority than that, so that by the time you get to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, everybody's baffled, and they're saying, whoa, nobody's ever taught with this type of authority, and they're so crazy, and as they leave the sermon, they're just like talking about Jesus, and he is the talk of the town and the talk of the whole land, which then led us into chapters 8 and 9, where Matthew really wanted to show that Jesus could back up those claims. He wasn't simply a person who talked about his authority, but he demonstrated that authority through a set a, a series of miracles, right? And so chapters 8 and 9, that is the main thing that Matthew was trying to demonstrate, right? Jesus' authority, right? So the first thing is that Jesus demonstrated power. A second thing that Matthew tried to accomplish in chapters 8 and 9 is that Jesus was growing in popularity, right? And so as those two chapters progress, we increasingly begin to see crowds gathering around Jesus, and we continue to see people's responses to Jesus, right? Because as he grows more popular, people are beginning to respond in different ways. The third thing that Matthew really tried to accomplish in that whole section was an emphasis on the theme of discipleship. Right, Because throughout that whole section, what Matthew did is he would share three uh, stories about miracles, and then he would include a call to discipleship. Then three stories about miracles, then a call to discipleship. Three stories of miracles, and a call to discipleship. Right, And so the reason why this is, is really, it builds up to the final few verses that we had at the end of Matthew chapter 9, where we see that as a result of Jesus demonstrating this authority, he has a lot of people intrigued in him, and he is so popular 
that Jesus is going to need other people to go out and serve on his behalf, right? It's not something that he can do by himself. I mean, technically, he's God in the flesh. He could do whatever he wants, right? But practically speaking, Jesus is going to need laborers to go work the harvest, right? That's how Matthew chapter 9 ends. And so that's how those three things that Matthew established in those chapters sets up perfectly what we see in Matthew chapter 10. Really, the last thing we read in Matthew chapter 9 was Jesus looking out at the people of Israel. And the phrase that Matthew uses is that Jesus saw that they were like sheep without a shepherd. And we didn't really talk about this in any of the previous weeks because I really wanted to save this detail for now. But what Matthew's doing right there is he is clearly alluding back to the book of Numbers, right? Because if you go to Numbers chapter 27, verse 17, you'll see that this is exactly what Moses was concerned about shortly before his death, right? Numbers 27, that's like getting closer to the end of Numbers. And um, really, Deuteronomy is really just Moses' final speech to the people of Israel before he dies. So as the book of Numbers was coming to its end, um, you have Moses considering the fact that he's not going to be in charge of these people forever. And he wants to make sure that there's going to be somebody who will lead the people afterwards because he doesn't want the people of Israel to be like sheep without a shepherd. And so what Moses does is he talks to God about it and God tells him to appoint Joshua, the son of Nun, to succeed him and to follow him so that once Moses leaves, Joshua will be there to lead the people, right? So in Numbers chapter 27, you have that explicit language being used, sheep without a shepherd. Well, Matthew uses that language to describe what Jesus saw amongst the people of Israel. And so it only makes sense that Jesus, the new Moses, is going to appoint his own successors, right? Um, just like Moses appointed Joshua, so Jesus, the new Moses, is going to appoint successors to follow him. Ironically, the name Jesus comes from the name Joshua, and so there is that also uh, etymological link between all of this as well. And so that's really going into all of, like, all of that context is really important for us to understand what we're going to read right here. And I know that you probably hear me talking about this stuff all the time and you wonder why I spend so much time about con talking about context. The reason why is because if you understand the context, the verses themselves will explain themselves, right? It's really, it's just a matter of like reading any other book, right? If you understand the context, the rest will just iron itself out and you'll get it. And then if I can explain the main points to you, you can reflect and get to the deeper points on your own, I believe. Uh, and so chapter nine ends, Jesus sees that the people are like sheep without a shepherd, and then the final words that we read is Jesus remarking that the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. So Jesus sees that there is a plentiful harvest in the land of Israel, but there's not enough people to work it. This sets up a problem, right? So basically there's a question, who is going to work this harvest? That leads us to Matthew chapter 10, which I have called Jesus sends out the twelve because this is going to be the answer to that question, right? These narrative chapters have set up the discourse, right? Because here what Jesus is going to do, starting in chapter uh, 10, verse 1, is he is going to appoint 12 of his disciples to go out and work the harvest. And so let's talk about this, starting in chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. This is what we read. And summoning his 12 disciples, Jesus gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Now, the names of the 12 apostles are these. The first, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. All right, so 
Uh, right off the bat here, we have to realize that once again, this is where, where sometimes the chapter divisions and stuff really hurt us, right? Because originally the Gospel of Matthew was not separated into chapters and verse numbers. It just read all the way through. And so if you start with Matthew chapter 9 and read directly into Matthew chapter 10, you will see why this shows up right here. Jesus just said, the harvest is plentiful. The workers are few. We need people to go out and work the harvest. So what does he do? He summons his 12 disciples. Now, one thing I want to highlight here is that Jesus did not simply have 12 disciples, but this is the very first time that Matthew references there being an inner core group of 12 disciples. And very shortly in verse 2, um, Jesus is going to give them the title apostles. Now, if you actually go into some of the other gospels, you'll actually read about the moment where Jesus actually appointed these people as the 12 apostles. He like goes up on a mountain, he prays, he comes back down and he appoints them. Matthew doesn't mention that stuff here. Uh, he just kind of mentions the fact that these 12 disciples are an inner group that we all know about, right? So obviously there are more disciples than just these, but these ones are the inner group of disciples that Jesus is specifically going to give authority, right? And so it says, in summoning his 12 disciples, Jesus gave them authority, just like I said. And specifically the authority he gives them is over unclean spirits, right? So demons, uh, in order for them to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. One thing that I want to point out to you here is that Jesus is the one giving them authority. So if you're just following the overall message of this, uh, this is really crucial to understand the Gospel of Matthew. I want you to understand the argument of the theme of authority that you see in the Gospel of Matthew. Right In chapters 1-4, through four, in the first narrative, we see that... Matthew demonstrates that Jesus has a valid claim to the throne of Israel, right? So he has authority over Israel. Chapters 5 through 7, Jesus seems to claim that he has even more authority, right? Well, that's really cool. Chapters 8 and 9, Jesus actually demonstrates he has more authority by performing all these miracles. But now we get to Matthew chapter 10, and not only can Jesus perform these miracles, but he has enough authority to give other people authority to perform these miracles, by the time you get to Matthew chapter 28, the final verse of Matthew, Jesus is going to say, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So if you literally just track the theme of authority through the gospel of Matthew, you will understand that slowly but surely, Matthew is demonstrating that Jesus is more than simply a man, right? He has authority that man cannot have in and of himself, right? He has the authority that is unique only to God right? Only God can have this amount of authority. And so if you just trace that one theme, authority, you see that in every single section, it's being advanced more and more and more. So not only does Jesus have this authority, but he can give the authority to other people. That is king level language. But a king over a nation cannot give people the authority to perform supernatural acts. Only a supernatural king can give people authority to perform supernatural acts, right? So that's really cool. It doesn't say that he gave them authority in the name of God. It says that he gave them the authority. It doesn't say that he asked the Father if he could give them authority. It says that he himself did it, right? Because he has that much authority to do this, right? It just really says that he has a whole lot of authority. And so what he gives them the ability to do is to cast out unclean spirits, to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness, right? So all the things that he has done they will be able to do. That is really, really cool. And then it says, now the names of the 12 apostles are these. And we'll talk about um, the 12 apostles in just a second. But one thing I want to do is I just want to highlight the importance of the number 12 and the word apostle. Let's start with the word apostle first, right? Because you have people nowadays going around the world saying that they are apostles. 
that's frustrating, right? Because you have to realize that in the New Testament, the role of apostle is very particular, right? And to be fair, sometimes the word apostle can be used in different ways. But one thing you really need to understand is that the word apostle, it, it literally, like, like the whole New Testament hinges on apostolic authority, right? The apostles are the definitive ones who decide the standard of what is and isn't Christian because ultimately the apostles are going to be the people who Jesus leaves in charge whenever he leaves, right? Uh, and so you have to understand the word. In Greek, it's the word apostolos, right? It means to be sent out. But in specific, an apostle is a representative who goes on behalf of a master. And whenever they go on behalf of the master, they're like an ambassador, right? But more than just being an ambassador, they act with the full authority of their master when they go out and do this. And if you think that that's just in outside cultures and that's not what's being invoked here, we'll notice that before we even read the word apostle in this passage, Matthew explicitly mentions that Jesus gave them authority, right? And the reason why Jesus is giving them the authority to perform these miracles is not just so that they'll be magicians performing miraculous acts. It's because the miracles are going to validate and authenticate their message, right? So Jesus is giving them this authority to demonstrate that the things that they preach have the same authority as what he said, right? And so that's really what Jesus is trying to accomplish here. And so whenever you read the word apostle, you have to realize that there is no modern equivalent of the 12 apostles to this day, right? Because the 12 apostles, they were a special breed. And to be fair, there were other people in the New Testament who were named apostles, but even if you look at the early chapters of the book of Acts, you'll see there were specific qualifications that needed to be met in order for somebody to be, de in order for somebody to be deemed an apostle. And every time you see that word being employed in this particular manner, it is a claim of authority. So whenever Paul says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, he is saying that he is writing with authority, right? That's just very important for us to understand. So Jesus takes these 12 people and um, he calls them the apostles. Let's talk about the number 12 right here um, because... This is obviously an important thing, right? Um, numerology and numbers is super important in Hebrew culture, uh, even to this day. Um, but the number 12 is probably one of the most significant numbers um, just because of the relevance throughout all of just the stories, right? And one thing we've been tracking throughout this whole study of the Gospel of Matthew is how Matthew is intentionally framing Jesus' life as being reflective of the history of the people of Israel. Well... I don't think it should be a surprise that right here we see something associated with the number 12 popping up, right? Because um, where we were at in the story of the people of Israel is we're in the middle of the Torah, specifically during the wilderness wanderings, right? And if you don't know what I mean by that, just literally look at the, um, the last lesson that we had where I really kind of broke that all down. We are currently in the wilderness wanderings right here. And so Jesus is appointing 12 apostles to go out and do things in the land of Israel. Well, this is kind of like Moses sending the 12 spies to look over the land of Canaan just like we read in the book of Numbers, right? In the same way, Jesus is sending out these 12 men into the land of Israel to examine the land and tend to the harvest of the land, right? So it's just like Moses sending the spies into the land to receive feedback on what the harvest looks like, right? That's really what Moses is doing with the spies. That's what Jesus is doing with the 12 apostles. In a similar way, the 12 apostles are kind of like Joshua going into the land of Canaan to carry on another conquest, right? Joshua was the one who was appointed by Moses to go into the land of Canaan in order to conquer it, in order to turn the land of Canaan into the land of Israel, 
right? And the whole reason why Moses appointed Joshua was so that the people would not be like sheep without a shepherd whenever Moses departed. Well, Jesus knows that he's not going to be here forever. He knows that he also, like Moses, is going to ascend a mountain and depart from this earth. So what Moses does, Jesus does, right? Moses appointed Joshua to go into the land of Canaan and establish Israel to go about this conquest. Jesus is doing the same exact thing, right? So Jesus is appointing a new Joshua to go into the new Canaan and establish a new Israel, right? And so you have that parallel, right? So in this way, the 12 apostles are kind of like the 12 spies going into the land. Funnily enough, Joshua was one of those 12 spies. But then in another way, the 12 apostles are kind of like Joshua in and of himself, the figurehead of the people of Israel going in to conquer the land and establish a new Israel. But at the same time, it's almost like these 12 apostles represent the 12 patriarchs, right? The 12 sons of Jacob, who themselves were the embodiment of Israel. The 12 apostles are almost a new Israel, metaphorically 12 tribes embodied in one group of men, right? And so you have really all these different elements being placed right here, right? The 12 apostles, these are people who have identified with Jesus and they have submitted to him and therefore they have escaped the new Egypt or the new Canaan that Israel has become. They've escaped that and they have become the new Israel that Jesus is coming to establish, right? And so the 12 men, they have escaped and now they are the patriarchs of this new true Israel, right? And once again, I'm not arguing for replacement theology where God has no plans for Israel, right? If you know anything about my theology, I believe that God 100% has a plan for Israel to this day and that he will fulfill those in the future. That's not what I'm arguing. I just want to highlight that what Matthew's arguing here is that there is a true Israel that the ethnic Israel will have to identify with. And that seems consistent with the argument of the New Testament, right? Whenever Paul talks about it, he'll say, not all those who are born of Israel are truly Israel, right? And so I do believe that God has a plan for ethnic Israel, but they are eventually going to have to come to Christ, right? And so where we're at currently in here is that Jesus is appointing these 12 apostles, and in many ways, they are the 12 patriarchs of this new Israel. They are the 12 spies going out into the land of Israel, uh, into the land of Canaan to spy it out. But unlike the 12 spies in Moses' day who came back and 10 of them were not faithful, well, in this instance, we're going to have 12 of them go out and all of them except for one is going to be faithful, right? Judas Iscariot, he's going to be the one who betrays them. But um, I think you have really all of these different elements coming into play here and I, I think that Matthew was intentionally employing that like that. Uh, and, and I think not even just Matthew, I think Jesus was intentionally employing this. That being said, let's read through these names. Now, the names of the 12 apostles are these. The first, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James, son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, right? So we start off with a list of two brothers, right? You got Simon and Andrew on one side, and then you got James and John on the other. Um... I could spend a lot of time talking about these 12 apostles. Um, I don't really want to go beyond what the text says here because I really want to keep us focused on the Gospel of Matthew. But if you are interested in knowing more about each of these apostles, uh, I would highly encourage you to go to my YouTube channel and look at my playlist called The Lives of the Apostles. Um, this is probably the, that, that's probably the whole teaching series that I devoted the most amount of prep time to. Uh, and I probably have over 20 hours of content. I don't, I don't know the exact amount, but I probably have over 20 hours of content talking about every single one of these apostles, both what we know about them from scripture and also what we know about them from the early traditions that developed from the early church. Um, and, and I walked through each of these 12 apostles and talked about just everything. Like I was trying to be as exhaustive as possible. It's probably one of the most popular 
um, just like teachings that I have on this whole channel thing. Uh, and so if you do want to know more about them, I would encourage you to go look at that. I made it a few years ago, and so it's not as high quality as I would have liked, um, but I'm still pretty happy with it. Um, but we're not going to talk a whole lot about each of these guys individually. We're just going to read out their names, right? So we have the two pairs of brothers. You got Simon Peter, uh, and then you have Andrew's brother, and then you have James and John, his brother. So you got the two pairs of brothers, but also one, one thing that we're going to see over the course of this gospel and over the course of the other gospels is that Simon, Andrew, James, and John seem to have been set apart, and they seem to have been like the innermost group of Jesus' disciples. Uh, and really, even amongst those four, you have Simon, James, and John, who are the inner three, right? So Andrew, sometimes he'll be with them, sometimes he won't be, right? But this really seems to be the inner group. And so it might seem to suggest that as we're going through this list, we're getting further and further away from Jesus in a way. Uh, because whenever you actually look at the other Gospels where they list these out as well, um, they don't always list them in the same order, but they do list them in the same groupings, right? The groupings of four. There's really three groupings of four here. Uh, and you're always going to see like Simon, Andrew, James, and John together. You're always going to see Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, and Matthew together. And you're always going to see James, Thaddeus, Simon, and Judas together, right? And so um, it, it might be that this first group is like the innermost group to Jesus. And then you have the second group, which is the second closest. And then the third, which is the furthest away. That's just kind of hypothetical, but we do know that for sure, at least Simon, Andrew, James, and John were the closest to him, right? And they're the two pairs of brothers. And then you have Philip and Bartholomew. Uh, and then you have Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. Uh, I think it's interesting that Matthew, he calls himself Matthew the tax collector here, right? We know that Matthew had already left his profession. He was no longer a tax collector here, but just like assuming that the traditional belief is correct and that Matthew the tax collector is the author of the gospel of Matthew, I just think that's so fascinating and so humble of him to still identify himself with that, right? It's not like he's trying to praise himself. He reminds us in the gospel what's like where he came from, right? He could just say Thomas and Matthew and we'd be like, oh yeah, that's the same guy from before, but he doesn't do that. He says Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. Like he goes out of his way to mention his former profession just to remember, like just to remind you of the grace of God, right? The fact that he was taken from this, yet he was esteemed an apostle. That's so cool. And then he talks about James, son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. Uh, one thing that you'll see in the Gospels is that every single time Judas Iscariot is going to be mentioned, his name is going to be attached to the fact that he betrayed Jesus, right? The Gospel writers, they cannot, um, they can't separate him from that event, right? Because for, like, if you think about it, for three and a half years, these guys were best friends with Jesus and best friends with one another. And they probably, like, they probably loved Judas, right? Judas was one of their own. And then Judas eventually betrays him. And so even decades afterwards, every time they mention him, they can't help but include the fact that Judas is the one who betrayed Jesus. But we haven't gotten to that point in the story yet. And so we're not going to linger on it too much right now. The main thing that I want you to know about this before we move on to the actual instructions that Jesus is going to give to them, and that's really all we're going to cover today. We're not covering a huge section of scripture today. Um, the main thing that I need you to realize about these 12 apostles right here is that just as Jesus came to shepherd Israel, so also he is going to appoint the 12 apostles to do the same task, right? These are his apostles. These are his ambassadors. He is the shepherd of Israel. They are going to be the sub-shepherds who go out into the land to actually take care of the flock. They're going to do it right now while he is there so he can guide them and he can correct them and he can make them better at the job. But then their role is going to become increasingly prominent once he leaves because these are the people he is going to leave in charge. 
As Peter Lightheart puts it, they are the root of the new tree of Israel, the first spark of a new Israel that will be a light to the nations. What we're going to see in the verses that come is that he's specifically going to send them to the people of Israel. But by the time you get to Matthew chapter 28, he's going to send them on a new mission, right? And he's going to say, go and make disciples of all the nations, right? And so right here, we basically have a foretaste of what's going to come at the end of the gospel of Matthew. And so the things that play out in Matthew chapter 10 and following are supposed to give us a foretaste of what happens following the end of the gospel of Matthew, right? Uh, and so right now he's going to send them to Israel, but then eventually he's going to send them out to all the nations as well, uh, to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. So these are the 12 that he's going to send out to work the harvest. And just to talk about that harvest imagery real quick, because we didn't really linger on this too much in the previous weeks, but Jesus specifically said, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. These are the workers Jesus is going to send out to work the harvest. And I just want to remind you the nature of harvest work, right? Because on one hand, harvest is a time of joyful gathering, right? All the work that you've put in has now come to fruition and you get to gather the stuff in together. And it's a joyful time because you get to see the faithfulness of God and providing all this growth, right? So that's one good aspect of the harvesting. At the same time, harvesting is a time of separation and of judgment, right? Because whenever you go out and you harvest the wheat, you have to separate the wheat from the chaff. And so as a result, these 12 apostles, and we're going to see this as we go throughout the rest of this chapter, they're going to really have a twofold ministry, a ministry of mercy on one hand, but a ministry of division on the other hand, right? First off, their job is going to be to gather the wheat, right? They're supposed to go out and they're supposed to gather in all the growth and all the things that Jesus sees, right? He looks out and he sees the people downcast and lowly, like sheep without a shepherd. These people need somebody to shepherd them. The apostles are going to be the ones who go out and they're going to do the shepherding. They gather the wheat. At the same time, they're going to have to go out and they're going to have to sift that wheat and separate it from the chaff, Right? These are going to be the people who draw the fine line of division that separates followers of Jesus from everybody else. Right, And this is going to be something that we see Jesus emphasize later on in this chapter. Right, He's going to say, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Right, He came to bring division, and these guys are the ones who need to know that. Right, So on one hand, they're going about a ministry of grace and mercy and love and compassion, but with that comes division and hardship, and sober-minded judgment, and division, and just discernment, right? And so these guys, they're going to go work the harvest, but there's it's going to be hard, right? So a harvest, at one end, it culminates in this beautiful feast where you get to delight in all the food that you've, give, you've received, but outside of the feasting hall, there's a fire burning, and that's all the chaff that you discarded, right? And so there's joy on one end, fire on the other end, and these apostles are going to be responsible for really both ends of it, right? What you bind here on earth is going to be bound in heaven. And what you reject is going to be rejected in heaven, right? This is what Jesus is going to tell them. He's going to give them this authority. And that's why I'm saying the New Testament is built on that authority, right? Whenever they write things in the New Testament by the inspiration of God, it is representative of what God says. That is what Jesus is communicating here. And so as a result, what we're going to see over the course of this chapter, and I'm really just foreshadowing here, kind of spoiling it, spoiling it, but, um, the book's been out for a few thousand years, so if you don't know it, that's on you. <laughs> um, as a result, these 12 are going to be loved by some people and hated by others. They're not going to be loved by everybody. They're not going to be hated by everybody. It's going to be a mixed response in the same way it was with Jesus. And Jesus is going to get to that part soon. As we look through these instructions that he's going to give them, the majority of the stuff he says in chapter 10 
is a warning to them about the hardship that they are going to face. But before we get to that, I want to look at the actual instructions that he gives them. And this is what he says, verses 5 through 15. These twelve Jesus sent out after, instructing them, saying, Do not go in the way of the Gentiles, and do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. Freely you received, freely give. Do not acquire gold or silver or copper for your money belts, or a bag for your journey, or even two tunics, or sandals, or a staff. For the worker is worthy of his support. And whatever city or village you enter, inquire who is worthy in it, and stay there until you leave. Now as you enter the house, give it your greeting. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And whoever does not receive you nor heed your words as you leave that house or that city, shake the dust off your feet. Truly I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. So these are the only instructions we're going to cover today. Um, I, I really, I thought about going further, but I really want to just focus on these and I want us to understand specifically what Jesus is saying here. Uh, and one thing I want you to understand, first and foremost, is that Jesus is talking to the apostles, right? I'm not saying that there aren't things that we can quote from here in order to learn about how we should go about ministry. I just want us to be very careful about how we apply this stuff because I do see, um, like, especially Matthew chapter 10, people will just like quote stuff out of context here and immediately try to apply it to ourselves. I don't think we can just do that as fast and loose. I think we need to realize what he is communicating to the apostles first and foremost, and then begin to apply it to ourselves. Uh, and so Matthew says, these 12 Jesus sent out after instructing them, right? One thing that I think is very important here is that we see that Jesus sent them out after instructing them. Um, I'm just going to bring this up because um, a lot of people who watch my channel are familiar with the TV show, The Chosen. In The Chosen, they do this differently, right? Because what we see in The Chosen is that he, the Jesus, he appoints the 12 as the apostles and then he just sends them out two by two without really any instruction. And in the scene where he appoints them, uh, this is in season three, episode two, I believe it is. Whenever he actually appoints them to go out about their mission, one big issue that they have is they point out that they have no instruction. And sure enough, whenever they get back from their mission, they complain that Jesus really didn't give them any instruction before they went out, and they're actually pretty frustrated with Jesus. Well, that does kind of really alter the way this story is perceived. <laughs> uh, and, and that's actually an issue that I do have with how the Chosen portrays it, because Jesus really doesn't do a very good job of teaching the apostles in the show, right? It's like they've heard a sermon or two, like in the story, Judas has only heard like one sermon, and they're like, oh, that's fine, you'll be okay. Well, right here in the gospel, it makes it clear that Jesus had been teaching these disciples, right? He had, they'd been following him for a while and he gave them specific instruction, right? These 12 Jesus sent out after instructing them. Once again, the word apostle means to send out. So he sent them out as apostles after having privately discipled them, right? I just think that's important for us to understand. Um, he wasn't just sending them out blindly, right? These are people who knew their stuff because they had been delivered from oppression, because they had been delivered from the new Egypt and the new Canaan that Israel has become, they were equipped to go out and start producing a new Israel in the land, right? So he sent them out after instructing them, and this is specifically who he told them to go to, right? So the first thing that we see is the audience, right? He says, do not go in the way of the Gentiles, and do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, right? Uh, and so really what we see is that it starts really broad, and it works its way in. 
right? The first people they're not supposed to go to is the Gentiles, right? Gentiles just means nations, right? Anybody who is not a Jew, right? Don't go to the other nations, right? Later on in Matthew chapter 28, that's who he's going to tell them to go to. And that's as a result of Israel rejecting them, right? Um, this is like a Deuteronomy 32 worldview. He says, don't go in the way of the Gentiles, but also don't enter into any city of the Samaritans, right? You have to realize that the Samaritans, they might've been a little bit closely, that they were related a little bit more closely to the Jews. Um, the Jews and Samaritans didn't really like each other anymore. But what Jesus highlights here is you're not even supposed to go to them. He wants them to just go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Uh, if anything, this is a reversal of Acts chapter one, verse eight, right? In Acts chapter one, verse eight, he says, you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, right? So it starts with Israel, goes to Samaria, goes to the Gentiles. Well, right here in Matthew chapter 10, verse five, it actually is working its way in reverse. It's not to the Gentiles, not to the Samaritans. It's just to Israel. But notice he doesn't just say Israel. He says to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. This is carrying on the imagery of Matthew chapter nine, sheep without a shepherd, right? Jesus looks at the people of Israel, and even though they have leaders, right? They have king, like they have, you know, they have the tetrarchs over them. They have the prefects. They have the Pharisees. They have the Sadducees. They have all sorts of leaders, but they don't have a shepherd, right? This is actually very similar also to Ezekiel 34. If you go look at Ezekiel 34, that same language shows up there as well, right? About sheeps with, sheep without a shepherd, right? This is one thing that Israel has always struggled with, right? They'll have leaders over them, but these leaders are not shepherding them. Well, Jesus says, guys, y'all are going to be the shepherds, right? I want you to go to the sheep who are crying out for the fact that they're lost, right? He doesn't want them to just go to anybody. He wants them to find the people who recognize that they are sheep who are wandering without a shepherd, the people who are hungry for a shepherd and who are yearning to follow somebody. He says, go find those lost sheep and provide them with hope, right? That's who he's sending them to. And then the task that he gives them are five things right? As you go, first thing, preach. And the thing they're supposed to preach is saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's it, right? The message is simple. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. I could go into this long spiel about this whole thing. I'm not going to. I'm going to try to hold myself back right now. But this is the essence of the gospel. A lot of times nowadays, whenever we talk about the gospel, we specifically focus on the fact that Jesus died for your sins and resurrected and stuff, which is true. That is a core component of the gospel. But what you have to understand is that according to the gospels themselves, this message right here is the gospel. The good news is that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, right? The kingdom that the people have been longing for for thousands of years, it is right here. It is just around the corner. That is the message that they are supposed to go around preaching. This is the message that John the Baptist preached from the beginning. This is the message that Jesus preached from the beginning. And now in the same way, this is what the apostles are supposed to preach from the beginning, right? This is really the thing that we're supposed to be crying out at the same time. Every single one of these videos that I end with, I always say Maranatha, right? The word Maranatha means come Lord Jesus, right? It means come Lord, right? The reason I'm saying come Lord is because I want his kingdom to come, his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, right? Our message is the same as theirs. And this has been the same message that we have been crying out since the book of Genesis, right? Whenever the woman is crying out, longing for her deliverer, longing for the seed of the serpent, I mean, the seed of the woman to come and crush the serpent. That is what we're longing for. We're longing for the kingdom to show up. That is the good news that the apostles are pronouncing. They go around preaching, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's what they're called to do. The second thing they're called to do is to heal the sick. The third thing, to raise the dead. The fourth thing, to cleanse the lepers. The fifth thing, to cast out demons. 
the cool thing that we see here is that those four types of miracles that Matthew lists out here, we've already seen Jesus do. And I think that's intentional, right? It'd be really weird if Matthew had not listed Jesus doing one of those and then he tells them to do it because then it might give the false impression that he's giving them abilities to do things that he himself did not do. That's not what he's doing here, right? He is giving them the ability to do the same things that he's done, which is him saying that I am transferring my authority to you. I mean, he gives them the ability to raise the dead. That is not a small miracle. That is a huge miracle, right? Um, but notice, he doesn't give them the ability to control the weather. <laughs> uh, that's because the heavens are the domain of God, right? Um, and, and so Jesus can control the weather, but he doesn't give them that ability, right? He gives them very earthly yet supernatural powers, right? Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. We've seen him do these things already. They're called to do that as well. They're called to replicate his ministry. And so they go out preaching, and that's the first part, right? As you go, preach, right? That is the main goal, preaching. They are evangelizing. They are sharing the good news. But in order to authenticate that message, in order to prove that the kingdom of heaven truly is at hand, they're called to heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, and cast out demons, right? And so the miracles are not just magic tricks. They are purposed to authenticate the message that they're preaching, right? In the same way that Jesus' miracles weren't magic tricks. Jesus' miracles carried a message, right? They weren't simply done just to make things better. They always carried a message. And you have to understand this is the same thing with the apostles, right? They were going out to perform these things in order to plant little pockets of heaven everywhere they went in order to prove that the kingdom of heaven's at hand, right? Hey guys, soon on earth, it will be done here as it is in heaven. In order to prove that to you, boom, I've healed the sick. Boom, I've raised the dead. What they're doing is that they are redeeming and restoring creation in the same way that things will be redeemed and restored once the kingdom of heaven is finally fully established, right? That's what the apostles are going about doing. And then starting halfway through verse eight, what Jesus is going to go on to do, he's told them the, like he's given them their audience and he's, and he's given them their task. What he's going to do now is he's going to give them the means by which they are going to accomplish this task. And he says this, heal the sick. Oh, no, sorry. He says freely received, freely give. Do not acquire gold or silver or copper for your money belts or a bag for your journey or even two tunics or sandals or a staff for the worker is worthy of his support. Now, this is an interesting, interesting command. He says, freely received, freely give. He says, don't expect more for yourself than I expected of you. Apparently, Jesus was not charging them thousands of dollars to, you know, be tutored by him, right? He didn't make them pay money to be his disciples. Rather, they came to him and he chose them and he has been giving to them freely and he hasn't been charging them anything. And so he says, I want you to go about and I want you to do the same thing, right? As you've received, so I want you to give. But then he charges them even more than that, right? He says, I don't want you to acquire gold or silver or copy for, copper for your money belts or a bag for your journey or even two tunics or sandals or a staff. This is pretty extreme stuff that he's saying here, right? He says, I don't want you to save up money for this. I don't want you to have, like, I don't want you to, Really what he's getting at, he says, I don't want you to depend on yourself for this journey. And you might ask why he's commanding them to do this. And this is where I would say that sometimes people, like we need to figure out how this applies in our own lives, right? Are we being commanded to go about things in the same exact way or not? Well, I don't know. I'm going to leave that up to you and your own discernment to figure that out. But I think that why he's commanding them to do this here is really for two different reasons. 
Um, but both of them really go back to the Sermon on the Mount, right? Uh, especially the first one, right? Ultimately, what he's trying to get them to do is they need to practice what they preach. Because they're going out to preach that the kingdom of heaven's at hand, but presumably they're also going out to preach the same things that he has also preached. So they're going to be going out and they're going to be sharing the Sermon on the Mount. They're going to be sharing those teachings with everybody in Israel. Well, if you go back to the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks a lot about how you handle money and he talks a lot about how you trust in the Lord. And so Jesus commanded his disciples to trust that God would provide for them. And so I think one thing that he's encouraging the apostles to do, and not just encouraging them, one thing he's commanding them to do is to make sure that the message that they preach did not make them hypocrites, right? Because it would be hypocritical for them to go out and preach the message of trusting God while storing up excess things for themselves, right? And I'm not saying that all because you save up a little bit of money means you're not trusting in God. I'm just saying that that's the message it would give across, right? You're saying, hey, why don't you trust God to provide? I don't know. Why do you feel the need to like save up all this money? And why do you always demand that we pay you money for all this stuff? Like Jesus is just wanting to make sure that they don't give the people a stumbling block, right? This is going to be stuff that Paul picks up on later on, right? Whenever Paul writes about his letters, he'll always talk about stumbling blocks and how we want to avoid that. Jesus telling them not to provide a stumbling block, right? He doesn't want them to give off the appearance of hypocrisy, right? Which then goes into the second thing that I really think that he's trying to accomplish here. I think that he's wanting to highlight the genuineness of their message, right? They're going to apply it in a very extreme manner to show how serious they are about what they're saying, right? And so they are so serious about trusting in God that they are not even going to bring two tunics for themselves. They are not even going to bring extra pairs of sandals. They are not going to acquire extra gold or silver or bronze for their journey. They are simply going to go out and trust God to provide. So that whenever they tell people to trust God in the everyday circumstances, people will realize that they mean it because they're living it, right? The Apostle Paul, once again, he will do the same exact thing. Whenever you look at Paul's life, he did not charge people money for the things that he taught. Instead, he went out of his way to do other things in order to make money so that people would know how genuine he was. And Paul was more than willing to suffer and do all these other sorts of things in order to make sure that people knew that he was serious and he was genuine about his teachings, right? I think that's the same thing that Jesus is wanting his apostles to do here right? I can't put that in Jesus' head. I, I, I don't know Jesus' heart behind this, but to me, it seems like that's what he's doing. He doesn't want them to be hypocritical. And in fact, what he wants to do is he wants to highlight their genuineness by giving them an extra extreme command. And so he tells them, go out there and since you freely received, freely give, right? As I did to you, you do to others. Once again, it's more of like a passing of the baton, right? This is what I did to you. Now you are going to go do this to others, right? The father sent me to do this. So I'm sending you to do that, right? It's very similar to what um, he's going to say in the gospel of John, whenever he says, as the father sent me, so I am sending you, right? The apostle's mission is the same mission as Jesus, right? It's multiplication, right? Jesus was one person and now he's sending out 12. Then he goes on and says, whatever city or village you enter, inquire who is worthy in it and stay there until you leave. Now, as you enter the house, give it your greeting. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And whoever does not receive you nor heed your words, as you leave that house or that city, shake the dust off your feet. Truly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in that day of judgment than for that city. All right. So we've seen the audience, we've seen the task, and we've seen the means by which they're supposed to do this. Here we see the method, right? 
And what Jesus tells them, uh, essentially, uh, when it comes to this whole harvest imagery, is that the cities that don't welcome them are to be regarded as chaff, right? While the cities that do welcome them are to be regarded as wheat, right? So they're going about this ministry of reconciliation, but their ministry, even though they try to remove all stumbling blocks, their ministry is still going to be a stumbling block to some, right? So they're going to do their best to not be hypocrites, and they're going to do their best to be as genuine as possible, and therefore they're going to go out, and on no, by no fault of their own, they're supposed to gather the wheat. And that means that the people who do reject them have no excuse, right? And therefore, the people who do reject them are going to be chaffed, they're going to be kicked out. And so what Jesus tells them to do is he tells them to dust off their feet as they leave, right? What they're supposed to do is they're supposed to regard these cities in Israel, these lost sheep of Israel who refuse a shepherd. He, they're supposed to regard them in the same way that a Jew would shake off their sandals when leaving pagan territory. That is what the apostles are called to do here. This is sad, right? Because there are so many lost sheep. Jesus sees that the harvest is plentiful, right? There's a lot of people out there. There are a lot of lost sheep who need a shepherd. And so he says, you're going to go out there and you're going to be their shepherd. But if they reject the shepherd, the shepherd rejects them. And so they're going out there. And if the people reject them, that's on them, right? That's not on the apostles. That's on the people, right? And so they dust off their feet, just like a Jew would whenever they're leaving a pagan territory, a pagan household, any of that stuff. They dust off their feet because the people are unworthy. They're unclean, right? A city that rejects the apostles was to be regarded as no better than pagan Gentiles, right? Because that's what they're identifying with. They are the new Egypt. They are the new Canaan. They are the new Gentiles. They do not identify with the true Israel. And so as a result, the dust, the food prescribed to the serpent in Genesis chapter 3, will be theirs to eat, right? You go back to Genesis chapter 3, whenever God turns to the serpent, what does he say? He says, you will crawl on your belly all the days of your life and you will eat dust. They shake off their feet and they shake the dust at the people, right? That's going to be what they have for dinner, right? They're going to be eating the food of the serpent. They are going to be ripe for judgment. The final verse there is really oh, scary. Uh, Truly I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. You go read about the story of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis chapter 18 and 19, you realize these people were messed up. They were really bad. Um, Leonard Ravenhill has a really fun book, and the title of the book preaches in and of itself. It says, Sodom had no Bible, right? The story of Sodom and Gomorrah takes place in the book of Genesis, which means that it took place before there was any Bible written. The people of Sodom and Gomorrah were not followers of Yahweh. They were not followers of the one true God, right? They were a pagan people living in a land that did not belong to the people of God yet. So they were a pagan people in a pagan land who had no scripture, yet God still judged them for their sin. And we still remember them for their sin. And Jesus says, yeah, it's going to be better for them in the day of judgment than for y'all. Because the people of Israel, they had no excuse, right? They had all all of the Old Testament scriptures, they had all the prophetic word to lead them to respond to the apostles and respond favorably to them and receive Jesus as the king of the kingdom. And so if they reject this shepherd, then it will be better for Sodom and Gomorrah. Because Sodom and Gomorrah, they rejected some angels. These people are rejecting the very apostles who were given the authority of the king himself. That is going to be a problem. Going forward, what Matthew is going to do is he is going to begin to tell us the things that Jesus warned the apostles about, 
right? Because as we see, there's this ministry of grace on one hand, but also a ministry of division on the other. Uh, and so the division is going to become an increasingly prevalent thing and the apostles are going to face a lot of pushback. And so Jesus is going to tell them how to handle that. And we will address that stuff starting next week. Uh, until then, thank you so much for joining me on this journey. I have really been enjoying going through the gospel of Matthew with y'all. I hope you've been enjoying it as much as I have. Until next time, my name is David Tate. This is Now Let's Be Honest. Be sure to keep a smile on your face. Don't let anybody steal your joy. And of course, remember who you are. Maranatha.